You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Mananan, Kenway, Toves, Loining, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe. Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello, and welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. Today we're beginning our look at the English colonization of North America, and I don't intend to waste any time. Before the English arrive, though, I do want to give a brief breakdown of the people that were living in the region into which the English would first settle. The Native American people in the region were collectively called the Secotan people, that was a confederation of Algonquin-speaking people that lived on the coast of modern-day North Carolina. Mainly, they lived in and around the Albemarle and Pamlico Sounds. There are three tribes that concern us today. The Roanoke and the Croatan, the first two, lived on two islands in the bay that the English gave the same names, Roanoke and Croatan. On the mainland, there was... Another group of tribal peoples who were members of the Secotan, but they had their own alliance. However, I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce their name, and they won't come into play until later anyway. But then to the south, there was another group, a large coalition, almost an empire, of Mississippian indigenous peoples, and they were relatively recently allied with Spain. The conquistador Hernando de Soto explored much of North America up to the Mississippi River. There he made an alliance with the people there, known as the Mississippian people, who are famous for their mound building. Impressive structures from earth and wood, and they had an expansionistic, militaristic foreign policy. Another conquistador, working with their Mississippian allies, founded San Augustine. Those two empires and their alliance 
controlled most of what would later become the southeast U.S. The only real outliers at this point were a few Native American peoples who lived in the mountains, like the Cherokee, and those like the Roanoke and Croatan, who lived a bit further away and on the ocean. This alliance between Spain and the Mississippian peoples was troubling for the Algonquins along the coast. It was a danger to them, an existential threat. The Mississippian peoples were already known to be militaristic, but now they had allies with guns. So, when in 1584, two ships led by Walter Raleigh carrying English privateers arrived on their shores, the chief of the Roanoke, a man named Wingina, agreed to a similar alliance with the English. This is episode 150, Roanoke. The Englishmen behind this entire venture are people that we've mostly met before. We've met them during the stories of Francis Drake and the foundation of the East India Company. Almost all of them were West Country men from Plymouth, and all of them were gentlemen adventurers and sea dogs. There were names like John and Richard Hawkins, Walter Raleigh, John Smith, and Christopher Newport. It was Raleigh that said in his argument for the colonization of those American shores, quote, He that commands the sea commands the trade, and he that is lord of the trade of the world is lord of the wealth of the world. End quote. That's a compelling argument, and it attracted the interests of a number of people in Elizabeth's court, including, notably, Richard Hacklut, who outlined in his proposal to Queen Elizabeth the plan for their colonization of America. The plan, in his brief and straightforward way, was, quote, 1. To plant the Christian religion. 2. To traffic. 3. To conquer. End quote. And when we say the plan, I want to be clear what we mean here. Down the line, they were going to plant crops and establish plantations and import slaves and export goods. That was going to happen. But that was a very long-distance kind of plan. For now, this was a bunch of radical, Protestant privateers and pirates who intended to found a colony from which they could raid the Spanish. They were trying to build a pirate haven. Now, they'd been using the Atlantic coast for a hiding spot for years now. But if they had a base of operations over there, a place with shipyards and food and fresh water that they could use to restock and repair, the rewards that they might win would grow exponentially. This plan would take money from the Spanish. It would bring in new money to the crown, and it would cost Queen Elizabeth nothing. In her eyes... It was a perfect plan, and she smiled her assent. Sir Walter Raleigh began planning immediately. He named his proposed colony to honor the unmarried Queen Elizabeth. He called it Virginia. It's a stunningly poetic name. You know, for the Queen herself, and naming her a virgin was a bit of probably flattering poetic license, but also for the colony. Virginia was going to be England's first colony in the New World. Now, colonization has often been characterized 
especially by feminist historians and philosophers, as a violent and singularly penetrative act. And that would describe this bit of colonization perfectly. However, like most first-timers, this was going to be a clumsy and poorly executed affair. Of course, on the other hand, this wasn't really England's first time. For the past decade or so, they had been involved in a bitter war for their first overseas colony. Now, it wasn't in America, it was, you know, kind of a trial run, close to home, just across the sea in Ireland. That's the fight that made Grace O'Malley into an Irish folk heroine. It was a brutal war, though, and it taught the English a lot of lessons about conquest and colonization. Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Alan Taylor writes in his exceptional book, American Colonies, quote, Indeed, the conquest and colonization of Ireland served as the English school for overseas empire. In Ireland, the English developed both the techniques and rhetoric of colonial conquest. The English learned to consider the resisting peoples as dirty, lazy, treacherous, murderous, and pagan savages, little, if any better, than wild animals, and to treat them accordingly. In Virginia, the English employed the same language and meted out the same treatment whenever Indians violated the initial role cast for them. Grateful innocents eager to submit to their superior benefactors. Unwilling to play along, Indians faced the formidable fury of their uninvited guests. End quote. A fleet of seven ships and six hundred men, organized by Hackloot and Raleigh, left Plymouth on the 9th of April, 1585. The fleet was manned and commanded almost exclusively by West Country men, but the names that were involved which we need to know are three. Richard Grinville was to command the voyage. Ralph Lane was to serve as governor once the colony was established. And John White, an English artist, was to serve as the cartographer. They were smart to bring him along. His maps have illuminated this story. I should also note, though, that they had a number of scientists and even a metallurgist on board. That makes the mission's true objective clear. They were after gold. The voyage headed south for Africa, and then across the Atlantic to the West Indies, and then finally up to North America. And we need to remember during this entire story that that's how all trade from Western Europe reached the Americas, traveling west directly across the Atlantic and the North Atlantic wasn't really an option. There are times in this story where that's going to cause great consequences. The spot that the colonists had chosen was carefully picked. The Spanish-Mississippian alliance was a problem for the English, but the outer banks of what we consider today North Carolina and the shifting sandbars and shoals there were an excellent defense against the Spanish. No sensible Spanish ship would approach for fear of running aground. That's why 
in the years to come, much less sensible men like Edward Teach and Steed Bonnet and even Charles Vane chose this region as a base of operations. But it was also dangerous for these English colonists. The flagship of the fleet, Tiger, hit one of those sandbars. They managed to salvage the Tiger, but they lost all of the food they had aboard, which was nearly all of their resources. Everyone made it safely, though, to their destination at Roanoke Island. However, due to the loss of food, they had to change some plans. They were going to leave as many as 500 colonists there, but Grinville, in the end, left only 108 men there at Roanoke, including Mr. Lane, the governor, and maybe Mr. White. Nobody's really sure. Grinville left almost immediately to go back to England and collect supplies. But those 108 men left on Roanoke began the construction of a wooden fort. They did so with the full permission of the Roanoke chief, Wingina, but they had to disassemble their ships to do so. That left those 108 colonists without any transportation home. But keep in mind that this was the plan, as far as Wingina was concerned. They wanted the English to build a fort and bring in their men and their guns. They wanted them there to aid in defense against Spanish and Mississippian aggression. Chief Wingina even went so far as to give the English that were left on the island enough maize and other food to sustain them through the winter. Now that depleted his own people's resources to dangerously low levels, but it secured the alliance with the English. Still, despite all of that goodwill, the cracks began to show almost immediately. The English, as soon as the fort was built, should have spent their time hunting and fishing. They should have been trying to stock up their stores of food. But they didn't do much of that. Instead, the colonists spent most of their time hassling Wingina. They bothered him about gold deposits and copper deposits. When they weren't actively harassing him, they marched around the mainland looking for mining operations that they assumed these treacherous Indians were clearly hiding. Most troubling of all, though, as soon as the English arrived, Roanoke people began to die. They would occasionally fall prey to a sudden, severe, and almost always deadly illness. Nobody knew what the cause of this was. The Roanoke began to assume treachery or poison or even witchcraft. Of course, we know today that it was the contact of the Roanoke people with all of those old-world pathogens, direct and intimate contact. However, the death of all of these people, the suspicious deaths, began to build a culture of fear and mistrust. It was at this point that Chief Wingina adopted a new name, Pimisapan, which translates to one who watches. When the English inevitably ran out of food, Mr. Lane demanded more maize from the Roanoke people. But they didn't have any more to give. They had only enough left to sustain themselves through the winter, 
and they didn't have an opportunity to collect more. The English, though, were growing hungry and angry, and at this point, more than anything, they were growing tired of eating corn. So they began to suspect that the Roanoke people were lying, that they were hiding secret caches of salted pork and wine and honey, and in their wild fantasies all of that delicious food was probably carried on golden platters by beautiful nude women. That's not the case, but people, as they get really, really hungry, start to go a little crazy. So Ralph Lane, in what is one of the most despicable moves in history, led a raiding party against the Roanoke, an event that led to the death of Chief Pemissipan and his top lieutenants. Then Ralph Lane impaled the heads on pikes outside the walls of his fort. The story of American colonization is replete with horror from the very first Spanish contact on down, but to me, this is America's original sin. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Thing done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. The colonists there on Roanoke hoped that killing their chief would scare their neighbors into giving up their secret stores of food, stores of food that didn't exist. What, what an absolutely idiotic plan. Of course the Roanoke didn't give them any food. Of course they ran away and took the food that they did have with them. Mainly the Roanoke ran to the nearby island of Croatan, where they had close friends and brothers. That winter, following the murder of the chief and his lieutenants, proved to be a desperate one for the Roanoke colonists. At least, we can assume it was a desperate winter. We don't really know what happened that winter because no one kept any records. However, at almost the exact same time, Captain Grinville, who was returning to England for supplies, was having much better luck. His flagship, Tiger, made for the island of Bermuda in the North Atlantic. It was, at the time, an uncolonized island that ships from every European nation used for rest and resupply on their way back home. Off the southern coast of Bermuda, Captain Grenville spotted sails in the distance. Now, the Tiger wasn't a big ship, 
only 150 tons. She was merely a repurposed ocean-faring galley, but Tiger was well-armed. Grinville was a privateer. He was a contemporary of Francis Drake, and he refit his ship the Tiger after all of those traditional pirate standards. You know, he made her lightweight and fast and well-armed. When they got close enough, the crew of Tiger realized that they were outclassed. They recognized that ship as a Spanish galleon. None of the English knew it yet, but that galleon was the Santa Maria de San Vicente, the flagship of the 1585 Spanish treasure fleet. Now, in 1585, the galleon was still the most powerful ship in the world, and this was the flagship of the treasure fleet. Not only was it a galleon, but it was well-armed and specifically well-manned. Grinville, though, did not hesitate. He barked out his orders for the guns and the small arms, and then he opened up full sail to rush this Spanish behemoth. Now, the Spanish were caught off guard here. They even fired off a salutary salvo toward the newcomer, and Grinville took advantage of that. He didn't open fire immediately. He waited until the tiger crested a wave, and then he gave the order. His guns opened up, and they tore through all of the rigging and the sails on the Spanish ship. They even damaged one of the masts. That very first volley rendered the galleon almost immobile. And we might think, you know, checkmate, battle over, but there were still 250 well-armed Spanish soldiers on board the Santa Maria. And these weren't the regular provincial militia with which pirates would become so familiar on down the road. This was the crew of the flagship of the treasure fleet, the ship that was guarding all of Spain's yearly budget. These soldiers were the best of the best. Boarding the Spanish galleon with his maybe as many as 80 men was out of the question for Captain Grinville. Instead, he chose to circle around the Santa Maria, kind of like a shark circling its prey. Whenever the opportunity presented itself, Captain Grinville opened up with a full broadside against the Spanish. And the galleon was doing the same thing, but they had far fewer opportunities to do so. The galleon only scored a few glancing blows against the tiger. The privateers were small and fast and hard to hit, especially since the Santa Maria was unable to move. On the other hand, the tiger, who was very mobile, scored several direct hits against the Santa Maria, and one shot was timed so well that they pierced the hull before the waterline. A subnautical hit is really hard to do. You have to wait until the enemy vessel is listing away from you, that is to say, kind of leaning away, so that the part of their hull that would normally be underwater is above the waterline. At that same moment, your ship has to be listing forward enough, you know, leaning toward them, so that you can aim for that subnautical part of the hull. But you don't want to be listing so far that your guns will hit the water. This was a tricky shot, and Tiger's gunners pulled it off. The defense, though, that the Spanish soldiers on board the Santa Maria put up is impressive, and it's worthy of remembrance. You know, so often on this show, we've seen the Spanish show up to a fight unprepared underarmed and often unwilling to fight. I place the blame 
in almost all of those situations, squarely on the imperial leadership. But here, in this fight, Spanish bravery and valor were at their finest. The battle lasted for three full days of almost constant fighting. The Spanish ship Santa Maria was sinking. They'd suffered hits to both the hull and the rigging, and their soldiers. The deck of Santa Maria was slick with blood, and the shark was circling. Despite all of that, though, the Spanish fought on. And they were winning. The crew of the Tiger was crumbling. They had a much smaller crew, which gave them far fewer opportunities to rest than the Spanish, and her own hull was at this point also leaking quite badly. It looked as though this battle, that this action off the coast of Bermuda, might just end in disaster. So Captain Grenville resorted to desperate measures. He ordered his twenty best men to board a... I mean, even calling it a raft would be generous, basically some floating wood. But they climbed aboard nonetheless, and they rowed on over to the Santa Maria. And when those twenty soldiers came in close, like the very best pirates that we've seen, they opened up with small arms fire that tore through the defenders standing at the railing. And the English barely made it over to the Santa Maria. As they began their climb to board the galleon, their raft slipped under the water. Still, twenty privateers jumped over the rail with their cutlasses drawn, and they were prepared to fight, if need be, all two hundred and fifty Spaniards. But there was no need. Those Englishmen saw, when they finally stood on the deck of Santa Maria, that the defenders they had just shot down were the last that the Spanish had to offer. Those had been the final soldiers able to stand and fight, the deck of Santa Maria was strewn with moaning wounded and silent dead. The Santa Maria de San Vicente, the flagship of the Spanish treasure fleet, the pride of the Spanish navy, surrendered there and then to twenty English privateers. Captain Grenville took command of the Santa Maria and set about to her repair, but he gave the tiger over to his enemies, to the remaining Spaniards. And to his credit, I like this next bit, Captain Grenville ordered his men, who were mostly hale and healthy, to aid the Spanish in disposing of their dead in accordance with Spanish Catholic naval tradition. Then he accompanied Tiger to the Azores to make sure they were safe and that they weren't going to do anything that would get him in trouble, and he set the Spaniards free. This act of piracy... And it was piracy. The English and Spanish were not yet at war. It pleased Queen Elizabeth a great deal. And it very likely saved the Roanoke colony. You see, there was a question of the profit-to-loss ratio due to the colony. And this, this capture of the Spanish treasure galleon, really tipped the scales. It proved that a colony from which the English could attack Spanish shipping could yield immense profits. And you may have been wondering why the flagship of the Spanish treasure fleet was all alone out there. I mean, where was the fleet? Well, they'd hit a patch of bad weather just a few days earlier. While most of the treasure fleet was able to sail on through the bad weather, the Santa Maria was too heavy. 
See, she had all of her soldiers and all of her guns on board, but her holds were filled almost to the bursting with precious metals from America. Instead of capsizing, as was very likely at one point, she'd been forced to heave to and wait out the storm, and that's where Captain Grinville found her. All of that treasure was the cause of a bunch of celebration when Grinville brought it in. He received a hero's welcome in London. And this action off of the coast of Bermuda was among the very final straws that led England to war with Spain. But it wasn't the final straw. That was a piratical voyage to the West Indies led by Sir Francis Drake. If you have an exceptional memory, you might remember that as the voyage on which Francis Drake stumbled upon the bloody and burned and despoiled corpses of a bunch of Huguenots attempting to make a settlement in Florida. Drake was angry about that, and he took revenge for his Protestant brothers against the people of St. Augustine. He burned their fort to the ground. Then he hurried off to check on the English colonists at Roanoke. If they had attacked one Protestant settlement, why not two? And the people of Roanoke were nearly all from his hometown there in Plymouth. He was worried. But when he arrived at Roanoke, he found a substantially smaller populace. During the winter, many had died, and those who were still alive were starving. Drake did what anybody in that situation would do, and he rescued them. They all returned home. But then, only a few days later, relief for the colonists arrived. This was a ship that had been sent by Greenville immediately upon his return to England. It was carrying food and supplies for the colonists. When that ship arrived, though, they found Roanoke abandoned. Drake had just rescued everyone, so they left. But a few weeks later, Grinville himself returned with 600 men and even more supplies. This was intended to be the second wave of colonization. This whole drama kind of reminds me of a comedy of errors. You know, an old play in which a man and his mistress and his wife are all trying to catch each other and keep popping in and out of different doors on stage, always narrowly missing one another. The colonists and Drake didn't know that relief was coming. That first relief mission didn't know that Drake had just rescued the colonists, nor did they know that Grinville was on his way, and Grinville didn't know that Drake or the relief mission had reached Roanoke. However, the lack of people, or even of bodies, there at the colony really perplexed Grinville. I mean, where was everybody? Now, this is not the famous mystery of the lost colony at Roanoke. Everyone knows what happened to these colonists. They arrived back in Plymouth, safe and sound a few weeks later. But Grinville, at this point, didn't know what had happened. And he also didn't know about the murder of the Roanoke chief a few months earlier, or the flight of the Roanoke people. Naturally, when he found the fort abandoned, he went to talk to the Roanoke, their neighbors there on the island. And I can only imagine the eerie feeling that must have begun to creep in when he found not one, but two silent, abandoned settlements. What had happened here? This whole story, the history of Roanoke Island, is 
surrounded by themes of curses. And I imagine that at this point, those ideas started to creep into Grinville's mind. Now, Grinville was ignorant of the animosity that the locals were feeling toward the English. When he left, they were still on friendly and even allied terms. So he left a token force there at Roanoke. He left a force of only 15 men, but they had more than enough food to last them. It was intended to greet whoever was going to come next. He didn't leave those men because he needed the fort or to guard the food. He left them because were he to willingly abandon Roanoke, rival English firms would be legally allowed to send their own colonists in to claim Virginia. Those 15 soldiers were kind of like licking a donut that you don't intend to eat right now, but that you want to save for later. I don't do that, by the way, and you shouldn't do that either, and honestly, neither should Grinville. But he didn't yet know it. We might expect that the Roanoke warriors, or even their Croatan brothers, would be those who sought revenge for the murder of their former chief. But that's not what happened. They stayed there on Croatan Island. Instead, that coalition of tribes from the mainland, many who had likely seen what happened when the English were allowed to live here, they rode over to Roanoke Island and, in apparent friendship, two of them approached the fort. The English, under the assumption that they were still friends, remember they didn't know what had happened the previous winter, they went out to greet those approaching the fort. That's when one of those two warriors produced a wooden sword and ran one of the Englishmen through. The English retreated to their fort walls but almost didn't make it. Twenty-eight other Native American warriors jumped out and ambushed them before they reached the gates. However, the gunners atop the walls opened fire, chased the warriors back, and allowed the men inside. The Native American warriors fired flaming arrows into the fort, and they struck the warehouse a number of times. They knew where the warehouse was, they knew where the English had put their food, and this was the goal. They also hit another Englishman, who did eventually die. But once they had the warehouse afire, the attackers pulled back and rode away from the island. Now we know about this attack because of a report that was left by those 13 soldiers there left at Roanoke. But those 13 men were never seen nor heard from again. We don't know what happened to them. We know they didn't starve at Roanoke. It's possible that they lived and escaped and went somewhere else to live happy lives, but we just don't know. Again, this is also not the famous mystery of the Roanoke colony. But there is something ominous growing here, kind of a pattern of death and abandonment. In fact, Sir Walter Raleigh himself was preparing to abandon the project of a colony. But Richard Hacklute and John White talked him into giving it one more shot. And it's John White that was the key figure in this next attempt. They organized yet another crop of food and supplies and colonists. But this time, instead of 600 soldiers, they brought families, including women and children. 
One of those women was John White's own daughter, Eleanor, and Eleanor's husband, Ananias Dare. To make everything that is to come even more tragic, Eleanor Dare, along with at least one other woman who was going along, was pregnant. These were 115 middle-class people. Mostly they were from London and Plymouth, and most of them were probably looking to improve their situation. They were looking for opportunity in the new world. And we know their names. We know the names of all of the men and women and children that were preparing for this voyage. There was Ambrose Vickers, his wife Elizabeth, and their son Ambrose Jr. There was Thomas Elliot and his son, Robert. Rose Payne, Jane Jones, Emma Merrimuth. We know their names, and for some of them, we know their stories. They were to be the first wave of a new English colony that was intended to live in peaceful harmony with their Native American neighbors. And that's what the people who were preparing for this voyage believed they were sailing into. They didn't know about the original sin, the murder of that Roanoke chieftain, and the very real possibility that Roanoke Island and the colony they were attempting to build was cursed. Next time, we're going to follow these English colonists to Roanoke Colony. And then we're going to follow those who came after, searching for evidence of what might have happened to them. Characters like Walter Raleigh and Christopher Newport, the pirate and privateer who founded the next American colony at Jamestown. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everyone who has helped to support the show, everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon or signed up to support the show through the website or the PayPal, all of you who have left a rating or a review wherever it is you listen to the show, and everybody who has recommended this show, all of you make it possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, I absolutely suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight